Well, I applied the sermon from this morning very literally, and I went and changed the oil in my two cars, and I changed my clothes for that activity. And then I, of course, obviously changed back. So I applied this very literally, and I'm sure that's exactly what David was hoping we would pull away from that sermon, but... uh, so that was, uh, I thought that was really funny because I had it on my schedule. I'm like, he said change oil. Oh. My wife and I looked at each other. Yeah. So anyways, well, I have the privilege to bring the word of God to you this evening. And with that, we will be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1. And you can turn your Bibles over there as I introduce this topic to you. This is a sermon to refresh you. It is to comfort you and to encourage you, to guide you to truth and to stabilize your faith. The Lord Jesus built his church so that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. There's no power in the universe, whether material or immaterial, physical or spiritual, that can destroy the church. But that doesn't mean that the church will never see difficult days, does it? In fact, the church is perhaps the greatest sufferer of all history. As strange as it may sound, the church must be the greatest sufferer. It's necessary because how else does one prove that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it unless the church suffers its greatest blows? Our church is no exception to that. Our church has a history with trials and challenges, but... You are here, and you're enduring, and you're faithful, and you're standing firm. And what I want to address with you today, or this evening, is that your endurance matters. It matters. And God knows it, and he cares about it, and he cares about you. And your endurance is worth it. It's worth more than we can conceive right now, and God will honor your endurance. Now, what does 2 Timothy have to do with that? Well, frankly, everything, actually, if we understand 2 Timothy properly. You see, every book in the Bible has a canonical purpose. It belongs in the canon. There's no, oops, that book somehow got in the Bible. There is none of that. Every book in the Bible is authoritative, instructive, and applicable to the original audience to whom it was written, and it is authoritative, instructive, and applicable to future generations of all God's people like you and me. Some of you enjoy putting puzzles together. In my growing up years, that was a staple during our Christmas season at my parents' house, Uh, And even today, anytime that my wife and I go and visit my parents, there's always that puzzle there around Christmas season right in the corner of the room. And inevitably, an evening together, uh, all the family together, will not pass without someone in the family drifting over there and finding their way to the puzzle. And in a few minutes, they are trying to chisel out at least a little section of it. I know I was doing that a lot, actually, during our Christmas seasons uh, going in the past. And I know not all of you are into puzzles, but it's remarkable how 
easy it is to get sucked into a puzzle, even if you don't think you're really a puzzle person. And like, once you just find like two pieces that go together, you're like pulling up a chair and you're trying to finish the rest of the puzzle. Uh, it's so funny how that is. And as you assemble piece by piece, it's really fun to see the picture actually take form, you know? Even though you already see the picture on the box in front of you, it kind of steals away, like, the surprise. You're like, oh, that's what it is. But at least you, uh, uh, you get to see that as kind of a goal that you're shooting for. Uh, but it is fun to see that take form. It's like, oh, there it is. I see. I see the picture. You know, the Bible is, it's like a 66-piece jigsaw puzzle set is what it is. And each book, when added to the canon, contributes, and it's essential, to the full picture of God's plan. Until the last piece of Scripture is placed to complete that picture, as Revelation comes into place, it just rounds it out. And unlike modern puzzles, this is what's so cool about the Bible, each book was added to the Bible at just the right time. Wow, now that's interesting. Imagine an out-of-the-box puzzle where you're required to assemble the puzzle in perfect sequence. <laughs> so then when you like find two pieces that legitimately go together, but you did it out of order, you fail the puzzle. That doesn't sound like a very relaxing Christmas, does it? The Bible is God's puzzle that he put together where each piece not only connects perfectly to the other pieces around it, but each piece was placed in perfect sequence to address the immediate needs of God's people at each moment that a book is composed. And at the same time, each book was placed strategically into the canon for all future generations as a unique and essential contribution to theology and to the tapestry of progressive revelation. That is why there are 66 books to the Bible. Uh, technically, there are 62 because Samuel King's, um, yeah, Samuel King's Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah actually all they go together in their parts. But there are 66 books to the Bible because every book is essential to the puzzle. And there is no other piece necessary to complete the puzzle. There's nothing less than 66 and nothing more than 66. In other words, the Bible does not need to be made more concise or expanded because of lack of clarity. And what I'm not saying is that, well, we can't summarize the Bible. No, of course we can. I'm not saying that we cannot simplify truths into theological principles uh, or provide commentary on truths for further clarification. We can do that. We do that. But the text itself is not improved by being made more succinct or being made into a theological textbook, or by being explained with more words in a commentary. It's like when you're writing a paper for a class at school, and you get that note on the paper that says, be more concise here, right? Bring it down a little bit further, right? Or you're preaching a sermon, like right now, and then everyone, you know, gives you the, the notion, well, you know, you're a little wordy with your sermon. You can be more concise. And I know, like, well, that's totally me. Actually, that's true. I can always improve on being more concise and more efficient. But the Bible doesn't need that. The Bible doesn't need that. Listen, the Bible cannot be made more efficient. It can't be made more efficient. It's exactly what God wanted to say, no more and no less. 
And at this point, you might be thinking that I'm preaching a different sermon than 2 Timothy 1. Uh, But the reason I bring this up specifically related to the canon of Scripture is because 2 Timothy is an optimal example of one of those well-timed puzzle pieces in Scripture. And I want to show you that because it has a significant implication on what perhaps you might be challenged by tonight. 2 Timothy is the last of Paul's letters. Paul is ready to die. These are his final inspired words. And because of this, Paul is passing off the baton, uh, technically you could say really the ministry baton to Timothy. And that sets up a huge question that this book answers. And you must understand this question to really understand the book. This book is not primarily about dealing with Timothy's individual fear, although it addresses that. That's important, and we will see that this evening. This book is not primarily about what it means to be a good pastor or a good preacher, although the book addresses that. This book is not primarily about even suffering, although the book addresses that, and actually it's a key theme that we see throughout the book. But primarily, this book answers a very important question that's tied to the rest of the canon of Scripture. And it's this. Will the gospel survive the handoff from Paul to Timothy? That's the question that this book answers. Will the gospel survive the handoff from Paul to Timothy? That's the burning question of this book as it relates to the grand plan of the Bible. When you recognize that this is the central theme of this book, the pieces of the book not only come together well like a, um, I should say, the, the, the pieces of this book, they not only come together like a Christmas jigsaw puzzle, like I was using that illustration, but they also fit beautifully. You can see how they fit beautifully into the grand puzzle of Scripture. As Paul passes off the baton to Timothy, there are questions that need answering. Will the gospel survive the handoff? Will the church survive? Will God's people endure the change? Well, you should be there in 2 Timothy chapter 1, I hope. I want you to look for a moment at verse 12 before we dive into the text that we're going to be looking at tonight. If you look at verse 12, this is not only a popular verse, it's really a central theme to this book. Verse 12, Paul says, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed. Why? Because I know whom I have believed, and I've become convinced that he is able to guard my entrustment for that day. Do you hear what Paul's saying there? He's saying, yeah, yeah, I'm suffering. I'm suffering because I was appointed by God as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a message that the world despises. Yeah, I'm going to die for this message very soon. But I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Because I know him whom I've believed. It's the kind of knowing here that communicates, I know who he is. I know his character. I've seen what he's done. I know what he's capable of. And I've become convinced that he is able to guard my entrustment for that day. Very important words. You have to understand what guard my entrustment means to really understand the book of 2 Timothy. 
It's really important. Certainly, we can argue that Paul was entrusted with the gospel message from God. So there's that kind of entrustment that he was given. He was commissioned as an apostle. He was given a message to proclaim first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, which is what he did dutifully as he went from city to city. A message of salvation and mercy and hope for the world by faith in Jesus Christ alone, something that he takes actually some time there in verses 9 and 10 to explain in a very poetic way. That's what Paul was entrusted with, the gospel, the ministry. That's what he calls the entrustment. But it's more than that because the context of 2 Timothy actually makes this abundantly clear. Paul was not only entrusted with this message, he was entrusting this message to Timothy. In other words, Paul must Pass the baton to Timothy, and the baton is the entrustment of the gospel message from one man to another. And what's so significant about this passing of ministry from one to the other is that this will be the first time that you have an eyewitness of Jesus Christ passing the baton to a non-eyewitness of Jesus Christ. This is really important. This plays a big role in this book. That's what's so critical about this handoff. It's delicate, it's risky, it's dangerous. And here's what's amazing for you and me. If the gospel can survive the handoff from an eyewitness of Jesus Christ to a non-eyewitness of Jesus Christ, then it can survive any future handoff for as long as the Lord tarries. Paul and Timothy set the standard for handing off the ministry from one person to another. There never was and will never be another handoff as critical as this one. And because the handoff we know now was so successful, clearly God is able to preserve every handoff, every entrustment, every church body for all history. That's supposed to be comforting for you and for me. And before the handoff was even successful, amazingly, Paul was already convinced, as verse 12 says, that God is able to ensure the full success of that handoff. That's, that's a lot of faith. This is why we even exist today. This is why we're here tonight. It's because that handoff was successful. This is how Grace Bible Church even survived in the transition when Pastor Steve came and took the church almost 11 years ago. We are living proof that the handoff works. It works. And I hope that gives you confidence, especially because not every season in the church is just roses. There are times of difficulty. There are times of trial, suffering. There are times of change. He is able to guard and to watch and to protect his church and his gospel. But even though he is able to guard it, like verse 12 says, so even still, Paul urges Timothy in verse 14 to guard the, entrust, to guard the entrustment. Look at verse 14. It says, guard the entrustment, Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Now, that's not an oversight by Paul, as though he kind of unsuspectingly contradicted himself, 
you know, Timothy, guard the entrustment. Oh, but actually God's going to guard it, so don't worry about that. It's not an oversight by him to say that. Paul knows that God will ensure that the gospel will prevail. He, don't, he knows that. But he really wants Timothy to be the instrument that God uses to accomplish it. If Timothy will be faithful, Timothy will get to be the instrument that God uses to preserve the ministry of the gospel. And we have that opportunity, too, at this church, don't we? We all do, whether we're in times, good times or in times of trial or suffering or hardship or change. God will preserve his truth. He will preserve his church. If we are faithful, our very existence and survival, even our thriving so often, will speak volumes of how God protected and fortified and used us all for his glory. What's going on here can never die if we remain faithful. Be faithful and you will see God guard, protect, and preserve you. That's what 2 Timothy is about. It's not just a book for a pastor, although it is primarily directed and written to Pastor Timothy. But it's also written so that the whole church would know it and have listened to it or read it. Like chapter 4, verse 22, the last verse in the book, he says, grace be with you. And English does us a disservice because you don't know if the you is plural or singular. But in this case, you go to the Greek text and it's plural which is not necessarily what you would expect to see in this book because he's been talking to an individual. Yes? The whole church is in mind here. This book is incredibly encouraging for you, even as a church member, to know that God will sustain the gospel and his church. Neither can die under God's watch when the church stands faithful. Grace Bible Church has a wonderful opportunity to magnify God's power, to guard the truth by simply being faithful. By simply being faithful. And since our part is the being faithful part, that's what we're going to focus on this evening. The admonition is to be faithful in the good times and to be faithful in the bad times. In times of peace and prosperity and in times when there's hurricanes and whirlwinds going on around us. But there is an enemy to faithfulness. And Paul addresses it head on, and it is fear. It's fear. That's why Paul starts there in his letter with Timothy. Timothy, it's going to be easy to be afraid. I'm going to die soon. I won't be here anymore to admonish you or to comfort you. Times are changing. Be strong. Be faithful. Don't be afraid. These are the concerns that perhaps tantalized Timothy as he watched the day of Paul's death draw near. These are the fears actually that many a church has experienced in times of suffering or times of change or hardship or disaster. We must be watchful because when bad times come or hard times, fear destroys faithfulness. Fear destroys faithfulness. As Paul writes some of the last words of his life here, 
he thought that these words in 2 Timothy would be the most important that he could write to Timothy. And we need to hear these words because, well, you and I struggle with fear. And if Paul thought that it was important enough to communicate those as some of his last words, then we really need to hear them. Times may be good now, but perhaps not always. So hopefully you're still here in 2 Timothy unless you were doing a Bible drill competition with yourself. Uh, So let's start at the beginning here, chapter 1 and verse 1, and I'll be reading through verse 7 as our passage for this evening. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, peace, from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I give thanks to God, whom I am serving for my forefathers with a clean conscience, as how unceasingly I am making remembrance of you in my petitions, night and day, longing to see you, reminded of your tears, so that I may be filled with joy, remembering the sincere faith which is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I've become convinced that it is also in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Because God didn't give to us a spirit, a spirit of cowardice or fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of sound thinking. Now, considering the context of 2 Timothy, how Paul is handing off the gospel ministry to him, confident that God will ensure a successful handoff, Paul wants Timothy to put away fear and to be faithful to the gospel. So we understand that context, hopefully. And so, you too, as a church, actually, that's reading this letter here, as we read at least the first part of this letter here, just as Timothy's church read this letter that was sent to him, you are called to be faithful to the gospel without fear. And so that's the main point of today's, or tonight's sermon. It's this, be faithful to the gospel without fear. It's simple. Be faithful to the gospel without fear. And I want to consider four reasons why, from this text, why you can be faithful and why you can do so without fear. So let's start with number one. We'll go through these um, for the rest of the time that we have together this evening. Number one, you can be faithful to the gospel without fear. It'll always start that way. You can be faithful to the gospel without fear because you possess a sustained faith. You possess a sustained faith. This is looking at verses one and two here specifically. The book begins, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, Paul is the author, and he is someone who was sent by Jesus Christ. That's what apostle of Jesus Christ means. It means that he was one who was sent out by him. And it's, he was sent by means of the will of God. By means of the will of God. This is the how Christ was sent um, excuse me, how Christ sent Paul. 
This is the how of that. He did so because God desired it to be so. That's why. Now, that term will of God is not the same phrase that we would technically understand as God's divine decree uh, by which he makes all things happen in his providence. It's not technically what we're talking about with this term here. Rather, Paul, Paul's focus here is for God's heart, God's longing, God's desire in this case. Of course, God also ordained it, so it's both and, right? That's true in this case. But that's not quite the focus here when Paul speaks of God's will. This is God's delight. This is his heartbeat, which in this case, of course, he also ordained. And it was because of that desire or that will from God that Paul was sent by Christ for the gospel. And he was sent according to, it says, the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the gospel that Paul proclaims is one that fulfills the promise of resurrected life that we see going back even into the Old Testament. Long ago, biblical writers, or those who believed in Yahweh God, They prophesied of life for God's people, and they didn't always fully understand what that was exactly going to look like, but yet they believed that there would be life, that there would even be resurrection. And some great examples of that are like Job chapter 19, which you might be familiar with. Job chapter 19, verse 25. But I know my Redeemer is alive. I know that he lives. And then at the end, he will stand, it says literally, over the dust. And after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God. Job believed in life after death. He believed in a resurrection. His Redeemer lives, and he also will live to see his Redeemer, even after he dies. So did Abraham going to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. He says very plainly to his servants in Genesis chapter 22, specifically in verse 5, he says, okay, dwell here, and the lad and I are going to go over there, and we're going to worship, and then we are going to return to you. You hear that? We are going to return to you, yes? Abraham and Isaac. And so, by implication, the writer of Hebrews understands, even just from that terminology, because Abraham is literally going to kill his son. That's his whole mission, is to get up on the mountain and kill his son. He, real, he realizes, he, he believes in a resurrection. Well, God's going to somehow raise him from the dead, because God said, in Isaac shall a multitude of nations come forth from you. That's how seriously he took God's promise that God would preserve his seed through Isaac. That's the promise of life that the gospel fulfills, isn't it? The promise of life, that's what the gospel fulfills. That promise is only found in Christ Jesus. You cannot be raised from the dead unless you are united to Christ in faith. Paul was sent by Christ Jesus to proclaim a message that fulfills the resurrection promises of the Old Testament. And so that's what he's banking this on. That's what he means by this promise of life. And notice Paul's greetings to Timothy in verse 2. He says, Grace, mercy, 
and peace. It is really easy to just kind of gloss over those terms. We see those almost at the beginning of every New Testament epistle, don't we? You know, grace, mercy, peace, or something like that. And it kind of sounds like a custom greeting or some kind of a formula or some kind of a rote prayer. And there might be some of that there that's true. But basically, Paul, every single time he uses terms like this, and they don't always look the same, do they? He's using them strategically. He picks the ones that he's going to be using throughout the rest of the book. Very interesting. Anytime you see a New Testament letter start with words like these, you should immediately consider how these words will actually shape the rest of the book. And that's true here. These words, grace, mercy, peace, even this promise of life that we just talked about, they are repeated actually in 2 Timothy and they act as the scaffolding for the book. These terms were carefully chosen by Paul because we see, for instance, the word grace appear at strategic times in this book, like in chapter 1, verse 3, or verse 6, or verse 9, or chapter 2, verse 1, or chapter 4, verse 22, like we just saw, grace be with you all. And don't misunderstand grace. And, you know, a lot of times when I teach, I want to make sure I... uh, talk about this because it's easily misunderstood. Often we apply the definition uh, to grace as getting something good that you don't deserve. And that's true, right? That's part of grace. That's the outcome of grace, yes? But that's not a comprehensive definition, uh, biblically speaking. It's actually missing an essential element. Grace, really at the core is God's enabling provision given to his people right when they need it. And it's always enough. It's always enough. It often carries the idea of power behind it, because in order for it to be enough, you have to be enabled. You have to have some kind of power behind it. Like Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense if grace is just kind of getting something good that we don't deserve. It's more than that. This is an enabling power that gets you through the hardship. The term mercy also occurs in this book, not super often, but the theme is loaded throughout the book. Uh, We see the term mercy occur specifically in chapter 1, verse 16, also in verse 18, But the idea, really, uh, of mercy is kind of acts as a tenor throughout the whole rest of the epistle. And we actually see it conveyed to us, not explicitly, but just by by basically implicitly in verses 9 and 10, when he describes the gospel that Paul, when Paul describes the gospel that he's been called to, it is a gospel of mercy. It's a gospel of mercy. And the word peace, it only occurs one other time in chapter 2, verse 22, but it also acts as a foundation for what, who the man of God should be, that he should be a man that is peaceable, that he should be a man that is gentle and reasonable with those who contradict. This is what it means to be a man of God. These words, grace, mercy, and peace, they are the driving force for why we can be faithful without fear, because because we have a sustained faith. 
we have a sustained faith. The God who graced us with salvation, who gave us grace and mercy, he spared us in mercy, and he gives us peace. He reconciles us to himself. He does not stop providing those blessings after we're saved. Sometimes we assign those words to just, well, once I'm saved, I, I received grace and mercy and peace, and then that's kind of that moment, kind of isolated in time, and that's it. But that's not how Paul intends even these words here. Yes, it involves our salvation, but it is beyond that. He doesn't stop providing these blessings. Here in verse 2, Paul prays that God would grant Timothy grace and mercy and peace, even now even after Timothy's already been saved. God does not stop granting these graces after saving us. God sustains our faith with these graces. That's why you can be faithful without fear. God is sustaining you with grace, mercy, and peace. So number one, you possess a sustained faith. A sustained faith. Number two, number two, you can be faithful to the gospel without fear because you possess the same faith, the same faith. Let's look at verse three here, and um, that's what this point will be specifically focusing on. And I'm going to explain that ambiguous statement maybe because it might not be super clear, the same faith, what I'm referring to there. But let me first develop your understanding of this text and a little bit of the background. Paul is suffering in prison. Okay, this is the, the background of this book. He's suffering in, in prison for claiming that a person named Jesus is the coming Jewish Messiah. And the unbelieving Jews hated that, and they found every way to get Paul executed for it. That was their mission, their job, what they wanted to do. And as Paul waits for what he is sure to be his final sentence in this life, he begins to count his allies. He begins to count his ministry partners to rally them for one final charge. But the, the problem is, is that his ministry partners are growing thin. And Timothy is one of the last few missionary partners to Paul who has not yet been martyred for his faith, and yet he hasn't deserted the faith either. But even though Timothy has made it this far, he is tempted to be afraid. He's tempted to be afraid. And as we already discussed, um, that fear has made, some, um, has made some implications into his life to the point where he's tempted to be ashamed of the gospel and what was transpiring in Paul's life with the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 actually uses this term. He says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. You hear that word shame? Don't be ashamed. Verse 12, for this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not what? Ashamed. Verse 16, he talks about Anesiphorus and how Timothy should look to the example of Nesiphorus. That Anesiphorus frequently refreshed me and he was not ashamed of my chains or of my imprisonment. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Therefore you, my child, be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And the whole implication in the context is, in other words, be strong and don't be ashamed. Chapter 2, verse 15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, an unashamed workman. 
an unashamed workman. You hear that theme of being unashamed? It occurs quite frequently, doesn't it? In a chapter and a half here at the beginning of this epistle. That's because Paul is intentionally highlighting this for Timothy. This is a key thing he wants him to to focus on. But what was Timothy specifically ashamed of? Well, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 8, Paul urges him not to be ashamed of the testimony, of the testimony of our Lord or of Paul, the prisoner. And that word testimony, that word for testimony, it's the same term for, you could almost translate it as witness, Okay, it's almost like the, it's like the term witness, which is actually a commonly used term in Scripture to describe an eyewitness. Now, this is very interesting because often we'll use the term witness for ourselves. Like, I'm a witness of Jesus Christ, and I can understand why people would use that, and it's not necessarily wrong to do that. But you've got to understand that when the Bible uses witness, especially in the New Testament, it's usually referring to an eyewitness of the events that took place. That becomes a critical role. And this ties into what we discussed earlier because, remember, this handoff of the gospel is from an eyewitness of Jesus Christ to a what? A non-eyewitness. So Timothy was tempted to be ashamed of, technically, Paul's personal eyewitness testimony of Jesus the Messiah. He was tempted to be ashamed of that. And that, you know, because society was treating Paul like an outcast for it. Paul addresses this tendency of fear and shame in Timothy, and he does so head on. And you know, we too need these words, don't we? Because you may be tempted to fear and to be ashamed, like Timothy was. But you can be faithful without fear. And here's why. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. I give thanks to God, whom I am serving from my forefathers, with a clean conscience. Now here, I want you to understand, he uses this term, my forefathers, my forefathers. Paul here claims that he has stood undeterred in a long line of faithful men before God in a sort of priestly service. That's basically what he's claiming. And that he stood there and he has been faithful. And so this long line of men that he has stood in line with, these are his forefathers. This would remind Timothy of where his faith in Jesus came from. It comes from long ago. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from a rich heritage that's been handed down from person to person to person. And so in other words, it's the same faith. It's the same faith. Is going back long ago. The faith that Paul was passing off to Timothy came from his forefathers. Paul hasn't invented another message. This isn't something brand new. It's not a contrived or a, a manufactured sales pitch in reaction to the pharisaical system that existed in that day. It's the same faith from long ago. And that's supposed to give Timothy great confidence because he knows that the gospel that he's called to suffer for it's real it's a real gospel it's been in existence for a very long time it's genuine it accords with his jewish upbringing specifically paul's jewish upbringing and it's the same faith as those who came before him 
And that should give you courage too, to know that. To know that the message that you believe, the message that you live for, is the same going back to the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, and that they comport together, they align together. That what you hold fast to is based in a message that is consistent from beginning to end and has been passed down from faithful men to faithful men all throughout history, even as we look into church history. You are not alone. It's the same faith. If you are genuinely saved, then your faith will endure because it has endured in the lives of many who came before you. They passed the baton to others, and others have passed the baton to you. So when you're tempted by fear of suffering or change or anything that's going on in your life or however that may be, remember that you have the same faith as those who endured before you. They endured, and so can you. So, you can be faithful to the gospel without fear because, number one, you possess a sustained faith. Number two, you possess the same faith. And then number three, you can be faithful to the gospel without fear because you possess a sincere faith. A sincere faith. And now at this point, you're like, oh, he alliterated it. Yeah, I did. Verse four, Paul says, longing to see you. Now, this is really great. I love this. Um, We get to see Paul's heart here. Longing to see you. And the question is, why, Paul? Why are you longing to see Timothy? Because Timothy was a sincere man of faith. As Paul put it, remembering your tears. Wow. The genuineness of Timothy's faith was branded on Paul's mind as he remembered these tears from Timothy. Perhaps the tears in Acts chapter 20, perhaps even going beyond that. We know... We know this from experience, obviously, that some tears are fake. Uh, People can use tears to manipulate, to contrive something. But Paul spent enough time with Timothy to distinguish between what was really fake and what was really genuine. This is genuine. This is genuine. This is real. And it gave Paul great confidence in the sincerity of Timothy's devotion, even though he knew Timothy was tempted by fear and tempted to perhaps disengage a little bit from the gospel because of the suffering that was impending. But he knew that the sincerity from Timothy was real. And that's the way it was in those days. Oh man, that's the way it was. These ministry partners were all in. They were all in. And there was this almost like a band of brothers mentality that they were all in together. They lived life together. And they gave their lives for each other in gospel ministry. Paul's mind is flooded with memory. I think that's what happens when you know that you're on death's door. Memories start to really reflect on things. His mind is flooded with memory of Timothy as he sits there in a dark, dank prison, and he vividly recalls Timothy's tears and his years of faithfulness in ministry. That's why in verse 5, 
Paul encourages Timothy, I remember the sincere faith which is in you. That word sincere is literally unhypocritical. Unhypocritical. It doesn't sound as poetic to say unhypocritical, right? But it's this sincerity, this genuineness that Timothy had. There was no double-mindedness in Timothy's commitment to Paul and in Timothy's commitment to the gospel. Paul knew it was authentic. It wasn't fake. And he had seen it. And the reason why I think he knew this was so genuine is because he's seen it survive the ups and downs of ministry over years of time. Even more so, he reminds Timothy where he comes from. Not that Timothy needed that reminder, but this is interesting because he brings this up, that that sincere faith that Timothy has was modeled to him by his mother and his grandmother, Eunice and Lois. Later in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul writes about Timothy's rich family heritage in the faith. You might recall that in chapter 3. 3 verse 14, he says, but you, Timothy, remain in the things that you've learned and have become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Yes? From whom? Well, that would include his mother and his grandmother and the apostle Paul and other apostles and other ministry partners. Verse 15 says, and that from childhood. I mean, the, the word is literally infancy. I mean, he's like literally saying you were like growing up with this right in front of you as an infant. You have known the sacred writings from childhood, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's the kind of rich heritage that Timothy had. Paul is saying, Timothy, I know that you have this rich heritage of faith in your family and in your upbringing. I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that. And not only do you have a rich heritage from which to glean from, from your mother and from your grandmother and from others as well, but I have become convinced that this sincere faith which was in them is also in you. I'm convinced of that. A sincere faith with a strong root system in the scriptures, that's specifically how Paul sees it for Timothy This is a sincere faith with a strong root system into the scriptures. Boy, that brings a vast amount of encouragement and confidence that you can endure suffering without caving to fear. If your faith lacks conviction or sincerity, you need to invest yourself into a rich heritage of biblical truth. That will develop your convictions. And as, that, as your convictions develop, your sincerity develops as well. Only then will you be able to be faithful without fear. So we have a sustained faith from God, yes. We have the same faith as the faithful ones who come before us. We have a sincere faith attested by those around us, yes. And we have a fourth one. And ultimately, you cannot really overcome your fears unless this last point is true about you. So I guess saving the best for last. Paul did that, not me. Number four, you can be faithful to the gospel without fear because you are empowered by a spirit-driven faith. You are empowered by a spirit-driven faith. 
very much like the song we sang tonight. We're looking at verses 6 and 7 specifically. In verse 6, Paul says, for this reason, for this reason. And whenever you see terms like that in Scripture, you should probably think, well, for what reason, Paul? What are you talking about? Connect the dots. Got to go backwards to the previous verses. For the reason that Paul, uh, that, excuse me, for the reason that Timothy has a sincere faith, for that reason, that, that it's sincere, that it's genuine. If it's sincere, then it's been wrought by God, yes? And not only wrought by him, but then now upheld by him, upheld by his power. So Paul says, I'm reminding you to rekindle the gift of God which is in you. I'm reminding you to rekindle the gift of God. And this is a rare word that's used, but it's actually, it makes a lot of sense actually for us even uh, in English as we even talk today. This word rekindle just literally means flame to life again, getting the fire going again. Paul's saying the embers deep in your heart, Timothy, they're still hot. There's genuine heat there. There's sincerity there. Get those flames roaring again. Nurture your heart and life for the gospel cause. But Paul wants Timothy to even spark something very specific inside of him, and he particularly he uses the term gift of God. Gift of God. I want you to flame to life the gift of God. The word is literally grace gift, and it's really God's empowerment, just as we talked about, that grace is really God's enabling work. This is certainly, I would argue, a reference to the Holy Spirit when he describes, even as he says, the laying on of hands that the apostles would actually enact in those days to actually give the Spirit to another individual. And we see examples of that in Acts, where they would lay hands on an individual to receive the Spirit as an, um, an authenticating way to demonstrate that this was actually a genuine um, transition moment or bringing the, the Spirit upon this individual from an apostle. We see that, like, for instance, like Acts chapter 8, verse 17 and following. And in this case, Paul wants Timothy to re-nurture the flames of the Spirit so that he can boldly face his fears and be faithful to the gospel, even if it means going through suffering and even unto death. So to explain this further, Paul reminds him in verse 7, for God did not give us a spirit of fear. Or your translation may say cowardice. That's a good translation if it does. God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, to be cowardly. In other words, Timothy, if you're tempted to act cowardly, um, if you're tempted to act cowardly, then that's, if that is in your heart, it's not coming from God. It's coming from your sinful and weak flesh. Paul says God gives us a different kind of spirit. He gives us a spirit that gives us power and love and sound thinking. And those terms are so important. I mean, we could have a whole sermon just right on that right there. Power, the, the ability to fulfill your God-given responsibilities, even in the midst of hardship and trial. I mean, the main idea behind that word power is just in... The New Testament is just ability. The ability to be able to accomplish something, even though there's a mountain in front of you, you can accomplish it because you have that ability to, to do so. It's the enabling work of God. 
being able to accomplish what needs to be done because God has enabled you. In other words, Paul's saying, Timothy, God has given you his spirit so that you are able to be faithful no matter the circumstance. And also the spirit emboldens you to love others, to love others in the face of danger. You know that you're not taking advantage of the Holy Spirit in your life when you recoil into yourself when times get hard. That's not taking advantage of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's not walking in the Spirit when you recoil into yourself. Instead, when you're walking in the Spirit, the Spirit compels you to love other people sacrificially and to give of yourself even perhaps your very life on their behalf. And the Holy Spirit also subdues your anxious thoughts and provides you with, the final term there, sound judgment. Sound judgment in the face of fear. And the word sound judgment is actually, interestingly, a favorite of Paul's in his letters to his pastoral undershepherds, specifically Timothy and Titus. It's very interesting. He uses that term all the time with them. And apparently that's one of the key marks of what it means to be a leader and a man of God. That's really important, to be a man of sound judgment. And it basically gives this idea of like clear thinking, clear thinking or even self-discipline. It's the quality that allows a man to think rationally and reasonably under pressure. You know that you are living effectively in the Spirit. This is really important. You know that you're living effectively in the Spirit when you find the ability to be faithful to your God-given responsibilities with a loving heart toward others and a clear mind under hardship. Can I say that again? You know that you're walking in the Spirit, living effectively in the Spirit, when you find ability to be faithful to your God-given responsibilities with a loving heart toward others and a clear mind under hardship. That's the antidote for fear. That's what verse 7 is all about. And Paul's saying, Timothy, you can do that because you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You can do that. And you too, member of Grace Bible Church or visitor tonight, If you are saved, if you are a genuine Christian and a believer in Jesus Christ, you can do that too because you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit. You can be faithful. You can defeat fear in the face of the unknown. You can because you possess a sustained faith from God, the same faith as those who came before you, a sincere faith that testifies to your genuine salvation, and a spirit-driven faith that enables you to be what God has called you to be. You don't have to be controlled by your tendencies to fear. Now, I can just hear there might be that thought in your mind, or you might have the claim, well, that's just who I am. I'm just naturally a timid person. I'm shy. Or I'm just naturally fearful. Other people are more courageous. They have the type A personality. They can do it. That's not my personality. Well, let me have Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones speak to that for you. (laughs) This is a quote from him that actually, it's a quote within a quote, because I got it from Wayne and Josh Mack's book. Well, it used to be called The Fear Factor, but now it's called Courage Fighting Fear with Fear. But here's the quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Here is the miracle of redemption. We are given our temperaments by God. All our temperaments are different, and that is also of God. 
But it must never be true of us as Christians that we are controlled by our temperaments. What is so tragically wrong in a Christian is that he should allow himself to be controlled by his temperament. The moment that the Holy Spirit enters in, he controls everything, including our temperament. And so he enables you to function in your own particular way through your temperament. That is the miracle of redemption. Temperament remains, but temperament no longer controls. The Holy Spirit now controls. End quote. You may have a temperament that lends itself to fear, but as a redeemed child of God, you don't have to be controlled by that temperament. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the resources to handle your fears no matter the circumstances. And though the winds of suffering may roar at times and the rains fall and the thunder claps around you, you need to stand firm. Don't give in. Don't fear. Remain faithful. And you can be sure that Christ will keep you until the end when he returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given, of your, given us of your Son and you have given us fully and abundantly and it is because of his work that he has accomplished a great salvation for us and it is because of his work that he protects us and keeps us so that the gates of Hades will not prevail against us. It is that promise that should give us great confidence but admittedly, Lord, we are often forgetful. We uh, do not dwell upon your promises as we should. We do not take them always to heart. And because of that, we often become afraid when we see difficulty coming. But how good it is to know that your promises are sure and we can stand boldly upon them. And we pray, Father, that we would take this challenge from the Apostle Paul, just as he gave gave to, to Timothy, so help us to do the same as he was called to, that we would walk in the power of the Spirit, which is courage even in the face of trouble, and that we would truly reflect the Lord Jesus Christ to the watching world so that your name gets the glory, so that it is clear that you are the one who has protected us and provided for us. The very reason even why we are here today is because of that. Lord, give us faith that we may see that and help us to be faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.